Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This week, President Biden is traveling abroad on his first international diplomacy trip since taking office. Biden has big plans for this foreign trip. He's meeting with allies, attending G7 and NATO summits. And on the final day of the trip next week, Biden plans to meet with one of the U.S.'s toughest adversaries, Russian President Vladimir Putin. I'm heading to the G7, then to the NATO ministerial, and then to meet with Mr. Putin to let him know what I want him to know. Biden has spent years representing the United States overseas, first as the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then, of course, as vice president. But his goals for this trip, his first as president, are notably ambitious. Among the main items Biden plans to address with allies are climate change, trade, and the ongoing pandemic. He says he wants to, quote, realize America's renewed commitment to our allies and partners. His approach comes now after former President Trump's transactional populism defined much of U.S. foreign policy over the past four years. In a speech Biden made to American forces at a British airbase on Wednesday, Biden said he wants to show the world that, quote, America is back. We're going to make it clear that the United States is back and democracies of the world are standing together to tackle the toughest challenges and the issues that matter most to our future that we're committed to leading with strength, defending our values. So can Biden effectively achieve the goals he's outlined for his trip abroad? Can he rally the world's democracies to meet the expansive challenges of today? And taken together, what might this trip reveal about the Biden foreign policy doctrine and what we can expect of the U.S. global standing in the years to come? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. I am in Plymouth, England, which is kind of nowhere near where the president of the United States is right now. That's Anne Guerin, a White House reporter for The Post. We're in the same country, but not even in the same county. And why is that? Uh, That is because this part of England is a bunch of pretty small towns and infrastructure not equipped to support the G7 summit bites and the needs of seven different leaders and their press corps. So everybody's spread out all over the place and the White House needs a pretty big footprint. So we're like an hour and a half, two hours away. Well, I have to say your hotel room looks very nice on Zoom. (laughs) It's actually very pretty. Um, And I have a bit of a view here. It is not as nice as the view from the castle where uh, President Biden is staying. I have visited the hotel next to that castle this morning for something else, and it's spectacular. So what has this trip been like so far? It's not only President Biden's first international trip as president, but it's also probably your own first trip abroad since the start of this pandemic. 
Both the press corps and President Biden arrived Wednesday. We were supposed to arrive a long time before him to get set up, but cicadas broke our plane, so we didn't take off for <laughs> about seven hours late. That was very exciting. But everybody got here safe and sound. The president's first stop when he got here was at a British air base. which is also the home to a large group of American service members, and mostly Air Force, but some others as well. And the president spoke to troops there as the first words he said on this foreign trip. He set the tone for the trip, but he also was making a point of speaking to American armed forces first. The transatlantic alliance remains vital, a vital source of strength for the UK, Europe, and the United States. We're going to make sure there's no doubt as whether the United States will rise in defense of our most deeply held values and our fundamental interests. As for me, it feels pretty great to be back on the road. I travel a lot. I've traveled to... <laughs> A majority, but far from all of the countries in the world, all but one continent. But I haven't been overseas since February of 2020, which was then-President Trump's last foreign trip and the last time that it was pretty easy for Americans to get on airplanes and fly around the world. So it's been a, been a long drought, and it feels good to be back. I just have to know, is Antarctica that continent that you haven't been to? It is. It is. <laughs> we'll add it to the list. Bucket list. So that's sort of been President Biden's first stop, but I want to talk a little bit more about where he's going to go for the rest of this trip. What's on the rest of his itinerary? So starting today, the real business begins. He begins with a meeting one-on-one -on -one with Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of Britain. Then the business of the G7 begins. The G7 is short for Group of Seven, which is itself short for the major industrialized democracies of the world, sort of the old boys steering group of the global economy. Much maligned in some quarters. Many people think it's had its day. But in this case, the Group of Seven leaders are trying to make themselves relevant in a number of ways, including by focusing very heavily on the distribution of vaccines to poorer parts of the world, to countries that are not part of the G7. From there, President and the First Lady will go to Windsor Castle on Sunday to see the Queen on their way out of the country. Next up is Brussels. It's where the European Union and all of its steering bodies are located. It's also where NATO is located. And from there, he goes on to what many would consider the main event of this about approximately week on the road, which is a one-on-one -on -one sit down in Geneva, Switzerland with President Putin of Russia. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.
So that's a lot for one week. Let's talk about his goals for the trip. He wrote in an op-ed for the Washington Post that this trip is about, quote, realizing America's renewed commitment to our allies and partners and demonstrating the capacity of democracies to both meet the challenges and deter the threats of this new age. So can you break that down? What's Biden hoping to achieve on this trip? Well, he's hoping to achieve, I mean, a couple of practical things, starting here at the G7, which is the rollout of uh, vaccine largesse from rich nations to poorer ones. That is something that Biden, frankly, had been criticized for not doing earlier. The UK and some other countries were also accused of vaccine hoarding. So this is a chance for wealthy nations that have a handle on vaccinations at home to start showing how they will distribute vaccines around the world and pay for it. The deal that Biden is announcing here is for 500 million vaccines that will start going to less developed countries, less rich countries in August, and that will be paid for by the United States. But the larger sort of amorphous purpose of the trip at all stops is to show that democracies and elected government, as cumbersome as it can be, it offers its people much better alternatives and can actually deliver on those alternatives versus authoritarian governments. And it's an answer to the argument made quite forcefully by China and a little bit less directly by Russia that a top-down version of governance where one person or one power structure makes all the decisions and can act more quickly, that that is the answer. We've seen that in the vaccine context. Both Russia and China were quick to start passing out vaccines to other countries. Hey, courtesy of us, here's a vaccine stamped by the Kremlin. Please have it on us. They did that very fast. The United States did not. Other Western democracies did not. So they're playing a bit of catch up. But the idea is to say, we can do it. We can both be responsive to our people as elected governments, and we can do things fast and efficiently when we need to. Part of what President Biden has positioned himself saying many times in the lead up to this trip and even on this trip is using the phrase America is back or the U.S. is back when discussing his approach to foreign policy. What kind of message is he trying to send by using that phrase, America is back? What does that mean to the Biden administration? It's a phrase he's been using since the first weeks of the administration, and it's a way to say very specifically to U.S. allies that the era of Donald Trump is over. The United States is back as your friend. In a practical sense, the United States is back as a reliable ally and participant in group activities. And these meetings, like the ones that Biden is having this week, Trump kept blowing up. He blew up a couple of G7 meetings. He blew up a NATO meeting over refusing to participate in what he considered to be, you know, group decision-making that he didn't think was beneficial to the United States. He also just didn't like them. He didn't like the setting. He didn't like being told what to do. So when Biden says America is back, he's saying, we're here, we're going to sit down and we're going to work alongside you. It also means America is back as a leader, which is a, in some ways a harder argument for Biden to make stick. The world is different. The world he says he's back to lead is different than when he was vice president. It's different because of Donald Trump, but it would have been different anyway. And that is something that I think we still do not know the answer to, how much Biden will be a leader for these organizations and allies he sees this week and how much he will be a compatriot. But in any event, they are just glad to have him. So 
At the G7, you mentioned he wants to focus on vaccines and vaccine distribution globally. Are there other issues that are sort of front and center for this G7 meeting, specifically things like trade or climate change? Yeah, climate change for sure. They talk about the three C's, COVID, climate, and China. There are issues related to all of those that are being dealt with here. There will be a pretty significant discussion of ransomware, which is in some cases a a Russian-originated problem, in other cases Chinese, in other cases cybercrime is emanating from all kinds of other countries as well, by the way, including within the United States. So they'll talk about ransomware and cybercrime. That's another C for them. (laughs) Yep, exactly. I know, somebody didn't count right, did they? Um, uh, They will also talk a little bit about some complicated post-pandemic finance rules, ways that countries that need an economic leg up can get some access uh, to funds through the International Monetary Fund. That's very traditional G7 kind of stuff to do. The vaccine part of it is new territory for them. So then let's move on to the NATO portion of the trip where he will head after the G7, after meeting with the Queen. What does Biden hope to achieve on that NATO leg of the trip? So the NATO part of the trip is very interesting to me, not only because I'm kind of a NATO geek, but it's one of the first times in a long time that I can remember that there wasn't a ton on the NATO agenda, and yet the stakes are pretty high. For nearly 20 years now, NATO has fought alongside the United States at U.S. request in Afghanistan. And that conflict is winding down as a military conflict. And there's a degree of hurt feelings among some NATO allies. This is not a major, major deal, but it's something that the Biden team is very aware of. When Biden was elected, despite what anybody who had been listening knew was his personal opposition to continuation of the war. He really thought it had run its course. There was an assumption, I think, among many NATO countries that this wouldn't be something that Biden pulled the plug on right away. He would want to study it. He would want to be not Trump. He would want to think about it, consult all the allies. They kept saying over and over again that they weren't going to make any rash decisions about anything anywhere in the world without allies by their side. The days of go it alone were over. So it was a bit of a shock when Biden said, yep, we're leaving. And the Biden people will tell you that it's not correct that they sprang this on the Europeans and NATO nations. But they kind of did. There was not the level of consultation and coordination, certainly, that a number of NATO nations were expecting. So I think it will be an interesting meeting on the atmospheric side of it. As far as very practical things to come out of the NATO meeting, there's a need to address the issue of Turkey, which is a NATO member, but is creeping toward authoritarianism and has bought Russian-made weapons, which you are not supposed to do if you are a member of the, what is often shorthanded as the Western Alliance, i.e. the people who are not Russia. You are not supposed to be buying those weapons. Turkey has done that to thumb its nose at NATO, of which it is a member. So that's been an issue for a while, but it wasn't an issue for Biden until now. So I think we will see how he deals with that. And the other thing he's doing on the sidelines of the NATO meeting is to meet separately with uh, the Turkish president, uh, Erdogan, where they will talk about those weapons, but also probably talk about a number of other things, including how Turkey can better cooperate with Europe. So then after that NATO summit, Biden will head to what many consider the main event of this trip, which is his meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Can you explain a little bit about where the relationship with Putin and Biden stands now heading into this meeting? So the relationship between Putin and Biden is 
complicated as all U.S. interactions with Russia are. It bears mention that the United States and Russia have the world's two largest nuclear arsenals. They are enormous nuclear arsenals. And Russia, for all that it is no longer the Soviet Union and is in many ways a diminished presence in the world, still owns a really, really lot of nuclear weapons. And Russia sees the world fundamentally differently than the United States does. And when you have these two divergent views of how the world should work from Biden's perspective, the world should work in an orderly way. And from Putin's perspective, the world is asymmetrical and you should use power where you can get it, which may mean sideways. And that is how Putin has operated for a long time. He cannot win a war one-on-one with the United States unless he's willing to blow up his own country in the process. He knows that. So everything is asymmetrical. With that backdrop, They know one another. They have met a number of times before. Biden knows what he's getting into, which is, in typical Russian fashion, Putin will come in with a list of complaints, which he will want to get through before they can get to anything else. Biden says he has a list of complaints as well. They want to run down those. And Biden would like to talk about some areas where the two countries may be able to cooperate, including on arms control. There's only one major arms control agreement between the two countries that still exists. Biden acted fast in in his first weeks in office to extend that, but it will still expire in five years. And then what? That framework that governed the way the United States dealt with the Soviet Union and then with Russia for the last 30 years is sort of coming apart, and Biden would like to repair that. He thinks the United States and Russia can cooperate on climate change. Putin came to the climate summit that Biden held in April and behaved himself. And, you know, they also think perhaps the United States and Russia can cooperate in space. We already do with the International Space Station, but there may be a number of other ways to do that. So they hope the United States, the Biden team hopes to be able to come out of it with a clearer understanding on both sides of what they think is wrong and a way to work together and kind of clear the air. Yet the announcement of this meeting with Putin has been met by some controversy, some criticism from Republicans and even from Democrats as well. What are some of the concerns that people are suggesting as to why it's potentially problematic for Biden to meet with Putin? The concerns are chiefly that it looks like a reward to Putin to be able to sit down with the American president so soon in that president's term and for Biden to have been the one to ask for the meeting. There's no instant crisis here. There are many things that are problematic, but there's no one thing, potential explosion, that means that the U.S. president felt that they had to have have crisis talks. He didn't. He invited Putin to have a sit-down summit because of the lengthy list of things that Biden wants to talk about. And not only Putin and others in Russia have cast that as... Biden coming hat in hand and asking for this meeting and elevating Putin in the process. But some Republicans at home have made that charge as well. The White House answers it by saying, look, you don't solve problems by talking to people you agree with. We disagree with him on so many things. The only way to really resolve those 
is by attempting to sit down and talk through them. So why wouldn't we do it? The other thing that the Biden administration hopes to do is to make a very forceful comparison with the last time an American president had a one-on-one -on -one summit in a European country with Vladimir Putin, which was Trump and Putin in Helsinki in 2018, which was a disaster when then-President Trump refused to back up his own intelligence services in their finding that Russia had meddled in the 2016 election and deferred to Putin standing next to him, smirking over what had happened and the assessment that the United States had made about it. We do not expect there to be a side-by-side -side press conference this time. I'm disappointed by that. I hope that might change. But even without it, the visual of Biden and Putin sitting down next to one another and Biden being forceful and direct in the White House view, they hope will help dispel some of that prior image. Speaking of that prior image and, and the prior president, during his time in office, President Trump tried to, to really disengage from U.S. multilateral agreements. He even floated the idea of withdrawing from NATO. President Biden has spoken about making the U.S. a global leader again. And, and you've touched on this, but my question is, do other countries want a return to that previous world order? I guess I would separate that out a tiny bit. Other countries want the United States to return to the fold. No real major decisions that involve several countries together can be made without the United States. It is the richest country. It has the largest military. It is powerful in other ways. It cannot be ignored. At the same time, not all countries and not all countries represented within these groupings this week fully welcome the idea of the Americans coming back and sitting at the head of the table automatically. There remains some bruised feelings from the era of Trump, but there are other dynamics at play. They worry that the United States has short election cycles. We're going to have another election, you know, in about a year and then another presidential elections, you know, right on top of that. And the same forces that brought Trump to power once could bring him or a Trump-like figure to power again. And so there's a questioning of the durability of the kinds of promises Biden is making. That's a long way of saying that they want America back. Huge sigh of relief. But there is concern about exactly what role the United States should play and how much those other nations can rely on Biden's word, however sincere it might be. So then last question to you, taking all of this together and what we've seen so far from Biden on this trip, how would you describe a Biden doctrine in foreign policy? Well, I think it's still TBD. The simplest way to think about it is that he wants a restoration of the world order in terms of the United States being a joiner and a leader. And he wants a way for the United States to pivot toward heavier concentration on Asia, China in particular, which in Biden's view can't be done effectively unless he's already restored U.S. alliances in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere. So it's kind of a two-step process. He's doing step one now, going around and trying to knit up holes that, in his view, Trump blew in that fabric and then turning to make a more forceful confrontation against a range of things that he has complaints with in Chinese behavior, both with its neighbors and elsewhere. All right, Anne, thank you so much for your time and thanks for talking to us from the UK. You're very welcome. One last thing before I go. I wanted to flag something new from the Washington Post that I think you'll like. The Post's opinions team is launching a new podcast called Please Go On, hosted by columnist James Homan. You might remember James if you listened to his previous show, The Daily 202's Big Idea. 
Now, every Friday, James interviews someone who's written an insightful or important op-ed for The Post. His first guest this week is Vice President Kamala Harris. The idea behind our new show, Please Go On, is to complement what we're doing here on Can He Do That, to create a space for guest authors to unpack important topics. I'm very excited about this show, and I think you will be too. So you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Again, it's called Please Go On, and thanks. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland, with logo art by Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. 